This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hi, everyone. It's Dennis Berger, editor of Soundstage Access. And Brent Butterworth, editor of Soundstage Solo. And we both write for the Soundstage Network, which is a collection of nine microsites that cover all sorts of topics in audio, from very low-end to very high-end to connected audio to headphones and everything in between. And this podcast will deal with everything from high-end to low-end to everything in between as well, except we're only going to talk about three things today. <laughs> <laughs> we only ever talk about three things. Yeah, but we got to, you know, we don't want to go on forever. Well, I kind of do. I enjoy well, hanging our, out our, with you, man. But our, our five listeners out there don't want to. <laughs> that They're is true. They're just looking for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of solid entertainment. <laughs> Let's give it to them, man. Right, Let's, Let's give it to it. them. All right. Hey, man, this week I want to start off with, uh, I want to kind of interview you. Um, okay. I want I want to learn from you. I'm here for you to educate me because there is this new white paper from Sonarworks on their blog called Sound ID SR for Headphones, mm. a new headphone tuning standard. And there is a lot about this paper that I don't completely understand. Okay. And so I, um, <laughs> I mean, a lot of, a lot of times in the course of this podcast, I will, I will, either of us will feign ignorance and ask the other to sort of inform for the benefit of the listener. Yeah. In this case, I'm truly ignorant. So I want to learn from you about this and whether there's any merit to this thing. Um, what do you want to talk about, Brent? I want to talk about Apple's new AirPods Pro. Mm -hmm. And what I want to talk about really is the reaction to Apple's new AirPods Pro because they're saying that they cancel twice as much noise. And people in the press are reporting it. Yeah, Apple's new earphones cancel twice as much noise. But people who know anything about audio will, will say, what does that mean? <laughs> and yeah, so I'm a little, I'm a little frustrated that uh, you know, we need to have a, a little bit less credulity, I guess, among journalists and, and not just be parroting what's in press releases. But we can talk about what does twice as much noise mean and try mm -hmm. to figure out what Apple's talking about. And what's next after that? I want to wrap up by talking about a review that Gordon Brockhouse did on Soundstage Simplify. I know we're talking about Gordon a lot lately, but he has done a review of this Really, really neat looking JBL integrated yeah. music system. It's a one cabinet solution, a connected solution. And I looked at that thing and I immediately thought, oh, I want it. <laughs> and cool. if I'm if I'm craving it that bad, there's got to be something here worth talking about. So we're going to dig through Gordon's review, talk about what okay. we like about this thing. And um, yeah, but let's... Cool. Before we do that, though, let's talk about the Sonarworks thing. So just as a point of introduction, I saw a post about this on Dr. Sean Olive's Facebook page. Um, he mm -hmm. posted a link to it, had a little bit of commentary. I followed that. I started reading. Uh, let me just sort of read a, a little bit of a quote here from this piece to sort of like explain to people what's going on here. And then I'm going to start with the interrogation. So um, the post says, Sonarworks has developed a headphone frequency response measurement methodology that yields results closely matching human perception. Mm -hmm. 
Based on this methodology, we propose a new standard in headphone tuning, the Sound ID SR, which suggests looking at the headphone sound as a sum of two components, a neutral baseline that matches the sound heard by content creators in the studio, and a curve that's either designed by the manufacturer or personalized on a user level. There's a lot that I, you know, I've never measured headphones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot here that I don't understand, but before we start digging into my ignorance, I just wanted to get your take on this paper and, and, and sort of what you thought reading over it. Yeah. But I have to, I, I just, I want to empower you a little bit. You know, the vast majority of people who comment on headphone measurements have never measured a headphone. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I, I only know, I probably only know a couple dozen people that have ever measured a headphone. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> anyway, Valid. Um, this is a long, long paper and Soundworks, mm. um, they have a technology called, you know, Soundworks or whatever they call it, that where they started out as a, a company that would, that would do, uh, that had calibration software for studio monitors. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then they branched out into headphones and they, you know, they came up with a, a, a calibration curve for headphones where they try to match the sound of a calibrated set of studio monitors in the studio, which is not real far off from Harman Curve because Harman Curve, you know, basically tries to match the sound of a good set of speakers in a good listening room. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's somewhat similar, uh, mm -hmm. both, both reasonable standards. Um, what they're really talking about here, though, is that something like Harman Curve is not really adequate because headphone measurements are inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, all the different headphone measurement gear produces somewhat different results. And because the, those measurements are inaccurate, you can't really judge a headphone by the measurements. Mm -hmm. And so what they're proposing is that, you know, it's, it's kind of like a new business model for them. They're basically sort of making a case for them as a consultant. Mm. And they're they're saying that you know since measurements are inconsistent then you got to have a panel of five expert listeners who will listen to calibrated studio monitors and then compare the sound of whatever headphone you're testing to the calibrated studio monitors mm -hmm. so you can do that yourself or you can send your headphones to them and they will then do that they'll run the measurement they will you know, do the listening panel and they'll give you the results of all that. And they'll tell you how your headphones conform They're, As you said, they are proposing where you have a, a subjectively neutral flat response. And then the manufacturer is, you know, then free to deviate from that as, as they see fit. Mm -hmm. But at least this way, the headphones are all judged according to some kind of consistent benchmark. Mm hmm so, I guess you want probably want to know how I, as a headphone measurement guy going back 10 years at least, uh, perceive this. I do. Yeah, there's one okay. thing specifically I wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. because this is what's boggling my mind. So, there's a, there's a figure in this white paper where they show a bunch of different headphone measurements and earphone measurements on a mm -hmm. bunch of different testing rigs from like the mini DSP ears to some Gross uh, rigs to some B&K rigs. And to me, looking at it, there's a lot of noise in this signal because I, they're not similar headphones. They're not similar 
they're not consistent in the rigs that they tested on, but let's just break it down to two in particular because they've got measurements of the Sennheiser mm-hmm. PX100 2 and the Sennheiser HD650 mm-hmm. on a variety of different rigs. And what's funny is you look at, like, let's say the two different Gras units and the B&K unit between the two. And to me, I would expect to see, well, if there are some variations in the frequency response that these things are taken, then they would be consistent between similar headphones. We're talking about two mm-hmm. open back Sennheiser headphones here. And I would think that these rigs would, if they affect the frequency response, affect them in consistent ways, but they don't like, for example, like there's some weird stuff going on with a B and K above 10 K or something like that. And mm-hmm. one of them that doesn't show up in the other. And so it's like, how would you, we're talking about creating like, uh, you know, compensation curves, but like, mm-hmm. how would you do that? <laughs> if there's a, if there's no consistency in the way these things deviate from one another, then how do you, how do you do that? Well, the, one of the problems is that there's a lot, I've done a lot of consulting, okay? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, I don't want to say a lot of times, two times I've been hired as a consultant to develop a measurement regimen for a manufacturer that would predict the consumer success of the product. Mm-hmm. And in one case, I went in to fix it. I went to, you know, another consultant had come up with like a scoring system for products. and had said, you know, if you do these measurements and they do this good on these measurements and that is, you know, this is a, a 75 and anything above a 75 is okay or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they found that it basically did not predict the success of the product. It di- didn't even predict what, say, Consumer Reports would say about it because, and Consumer Reports, you know, has measurements and stuff. They're pretty together. So they wanted something that would predict that. And I, I basically told them, you can't do that. You know, you you need to have a listening panel, you know, do the measurements and have a listening panel. And mm-hmm. because the measurements can get you in the ballpark, but but you still need to have some listeners and don't use your own employees as listeners because they're going to be biased towards your own product, even in a blind test. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they can identify the signature of the product wittingly or unwittingly. And they'll choose that. In fact, the first company had had an engineer who was notorious for even in a blind test, he would pick out the company's own product as the best, even if it was just total crap. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and the second company basically had this, you know, MBA sort of guy um, who, understandably, want you know, thought like, you know, I'm we're sending these products to, you know, we're giving these products to like random dudes on our staff who are, who are good audio people, but they're still coming up with something that in their opinion is good. And I want something more consistent and reliable than that. And I basically said, then, st- then have a listening panel mm-hmm. because, you know, if you can get past a, pa- a listening panel of, you know, half a dozen people in blind tests, you know, your product's not going to suck. Will it, mm. will it win accolades? I don't know, but at least it's not going to be an embarrassment. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have ammo, then you can say, Hey, you know what? we ran it past a listening panel of people in blind tests that controlled, you know, controlled conditions and they liked it. So mm. some reviewers said, well, this is garbage. Then, well, anybody can sit down and listen to any audio product and say it's garbage. Mm. Yeah. So, and, and some people are, are bound to do that. So there's no way you can do a measurement system or anything else that's going to, that's going to assure you of success with the product. And also this only deals with sound quality. Yeah. Okay. So, and so much of satisfaction with the product is based on branding, is based on the looks of the product, is based on the price of the product. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Comfort and of the product. Comfort of the product, all sorts of things like that. And so consumer, the idea that sound quality predicts, you know, that, that any assessment of sound quality predicts the consumer satisfaction with a product and the sales of a product is is deeply flawed. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, look, we do, in, in a lot of my work, I do blind testing. And to me, the great moment is when I pull off the black drapes and everything that hide the products and people can then see what the products are. And then we can talk about the price and we can look at the features and we can look at the styling and everything like that. And then people will say, well, you know, this is probably the one I'd buy. Yeah. And yeah. The, all the tests that we're talking about here completely ignore that aspect. They are just looking to isolate sound quality in this idea that sound quality is the predictor of success. Mm-hmm. And it is not. You know, I mean, Harman's done so much great research on this. And, and their research is still the standard, both on headphones and speakers. And Harman does well as a company, but it's not like they dominate the audio industry or anything. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, right, so, uh, so it's, I, but I kind of deviated. Thing. I deviated from your question, though. That's okay. That's okay. There's another thing I wanted to ask you about, too. So, a few episodes back, I don't remember which episode it was, but we talked about a paper by Dr. Olive in which he showed like preferences related to the Harmon curve and basically mm-hmm. broke down into three groups sort of like most people like the Harmon curve, some people like the Harmon curve with a little less base. Some people like the Harman curve with a little more base, but like yeah. those three targets, like you've covered most people yeah. toward the, toward the middle of this paper, this SonarWorks paper, they kind of make it seem like, nope, everybody likes something completely different, <laughs> right? Which and is it's just like, not true. Yeah. And it's, it's like, they, they make it kind of seem like it's just utter chaos in terms of preference and there's no real clumping but you 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 just answered my question i guess it's it's utterly untrue but i wonder if maybe that's well there's there's some truth to it i mean look i look no one no one in the press has done more listening panels than me i started doing when i was at video magazine in the early 90s and just because it was uh you know my old mentor lance braithwaite did it with video products you know and I, it just seemed to me like, well, that's the obvious right way to do it. I never thought twice about it. And it still is the obvious right way to do it. It just didn't very few people do it. Um, so, you know, and I've seen, I've done so many of these panels and I've done, frankly, a wider variety of them than any of these researchers have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with all sorts, with super high-end products and low-end products and across all categories of audio. And mm-hmm. you get chaos on listening panels a lot. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, we've done things like, I mean, I, I remember we did an amplifier shootout at home theater one time and they were all, I think they were like $2,000 multi-channel amps. And this was 20 years ago. So, mm-hmm. um, and everybody, it was blind test, level matched right on, you know, you could hear little differences, but the, <laughs> everybody picked a different favorite amp. Yeah. And, yeah. and and we had an advertiser who pulled out because of that. Oh, wow. Who said, I just don't think that this is the right, you know, magazine for us. And I still remember who that person was and I never forgave him. So wow. <laughs> he knows who he is. Um, <laughs> he I will knows. never forgive him because nope, nope, nope. Sorry you didn't like our results. Yeah. But they say um, that they had 235 calibrated targets here. That's... 
I mean, look, I've seen the noise of all of their overlapping measurements, and I can, mm-hmm. I can understand like how there would be 235 calibrated targets, but sure. that just seems like a lot. <laughs> it just seems to me that yeah. it would be you're you're not really controlling your variables at that point. Although they say they had, you know, the A-B testing results involving 147,000 individuals. So which is their user base, because they have a right. huge user base. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they have, they have a lot of data they can work with. And yeah. I want to address the measurement inconsistency thing, though, because there are, we, we've, we've talked about this. I mean, uh, you know, Tal Hertzen used to talk about this when he did the much-missed interfidelity. Um, but he used to talk very, he was the first guy to really publish a lot of headphone measurements. And he talked very openly about, hey, you know, you move the headphone around a little bit and you will change the measurement. And so mm-hmm. all these products are designed according to this. This was all standardized in, I think, the early 80s, if I remember correctly. There's a long paper and, and the ear design and the resonator design and the, the, the ear simulator design and everything is very codified. But you're still going to get some differences in terms of the implementation of the, the way the product's designed. I mean, I use a Grass 45, what is it, 43 AG, which is the little... Uh, ear cheek simulator that sits on a desktop. Some people mm-hmm. use a full-on, you know, head and torso simulator. Um, and the headphones are going to fit a little bit differently on these things. And you're going to get different results. Mm-hmm. So it's not like these things are calibrated differently. You know, they are all standardized. They're all calibrated well. But the way you place the headphone on the fixture will give you sometimes really big differences and what i do what what the standard says to do is to measure is to measure i think five or six times and average it which i don't Mm. do because my stupid audio analyzer won't do magnitude averaging so Mm. uh, but what i do which i think is actually in ways more valid is i move it around a lot on the on the ear cheek simulator and I look for what is the cons- what is really the characteristic response. I, th- I throw out like, okay, that looks weird. That's obviously wrong. But this is like, okay, you know, this is the curve that I am consistently getting the most. And so that's the curve I stick with. Hmm. Um, so I think that measurements, if you're developing a product, you know, you have your measurement gear and you know your measurement gear. If you're developing headphones, you've got, you know, a... Uh, uh, B&K, Gross, Head Acoustics, something like that, right? You've got some kind of a, a device that is calibrated, that's, that's built by professionals who know what they're doing, and that can give you consistent results. And you will use that device, and you can judge from your curbs what those headphones sound like. Anybody can look at, I mean, I've been using the same device for 10 years now, and you can look at my curves and go like, you know, someone who's been reading a lot of my reviews can look at the curve and go, oh, that looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Or they can look at it and go, Ooh, what's up with that? And then they'll look at what my commentary said. Um, yeah. So, and that's the way that engineers in you know the real world work is they have their measurement devices with headphones and they run their measurements and they know what it looks like and they listen and they run measurements and they listen and they run measurements and they listen and they run measurements and they may use a listening panel. I think a lot of headphone manufacturers do that, or they may not. But this is a process that if you want it to work, can work. You know, if you, if you want to design a headphone that is a good normal headphone, you can voice it to Harman Curve. You can get it pretty close to Harman Curve, and then you can run it by your listening panel and make some little tweaks to it from that. And you'll have a headphone that sounds good, that'll get pretty good reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, depending, on, of course, on the brand of the headphone. And, of course, there are some people, and if you say, oh, we voiced it to be close to Harman Curve, <laughs> there are certain reviewers that are going to immediately dislike it just because of that. Wow. 
there, there's if you go on the headphone forums, there's a lot of people who are absolutely convinced Harmon Curve is terrible. And in my view, this is has a lot more. I mean, there may be some people that listen to it and don't like it, and that's mm-hmm. fair. But there are also a lot of people who just push back on anybody telling them what they should like. And of course, Harmon Curve doesn't tell you what you should like. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. Right. It didn't. It doesn't. It doesn't say like, oh, we think this is the proper response, and so you should listen to this. It's like. Mm-hmm. Here's what we found, you know, hundreds of listeners generally consider to be the proper response. Mm-hmm. So if you don't like it, it could be because from a hearing standpoint, you're an outlier, which mm-hmm. is, you know, that's okay too. But my whole point, so I, I should say, so so what they're proposing uh, on this SoundWorks thing is the sound ID thing is not crazy. It's like, okay, you run the measurement and you you confirm the measurement with a panel of five people who compare the headphones to these calibrated studio monitors Mm -hmm. that's perfectly fine i mean i kind of wish i had the time to do that um i think that the downside of it is well first of all if you're a headphone manufacturer you are outsourcing your your ip to somebody else yeah and number one number two headphone developers and everybody else who develops products for anything are on Unless you're developing a super high-end speaker and it's your own company, like like Jim Teal would take years to develop a speaker because it was his own company and he could. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, if you're working for any of these companies, like say Sennheiser or AKG or something, you know, you have a deadline. And are you and you know, you have a certain amount of time you can spend voicing a set of headphones. And you're gonna do just what I said. You're gonna listen, measure change listen measure change listen measure change and you'll get it to a point maybe you'll run it by a test panel and you'll get their response and then you'll change listen measure change listen measure change go back through and if your goal is some kind of neutral sound you'll probably hit it Mm -hmm. um and to to take away from that process to say okay now we're going to ship our headphones to you and you will put it through your process and okay how long is that going to take um, mm, yeah. How, you know, how many other products do they have to do? You've got five people that you have to get and, you know, r- rounding up five people, even if, even if you have five full-time people that do nothing else, you, you still, you know, you're going to have to have a sub for somebody who gets sick and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's, so you're, you're talking about a, a significant amount of time in a product development cycle that can't absorb that. Yeah, I think in most cases. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you're a little tiny headphone company, well then, well first of all, you probably can't afford this. Second of all, if you're a little tiny headphone company, you're driven more by the the owner's vision. If you're say Campfire Audio, let's say, um, you are driven more by the owner's vision, and that's what people are buying into. Is you want to Ken Ball, who's the guy who runs Campfire Audio, you are buying into his vision of, and he has a lot of different types of of earphones that sound different and that's what he wants to do but you're buying into whole, his whole thing mm-hmm. if you if he then sends his product out for this service well first of all it's going to add a lot of time to his cycle and second of all you know he's going to get back a result that's not in accordance with his vision and we you know as audiophiles we we buy into people's vision a lot that's part of some of the appeal of of all this these are not yeah, you can you can look at these as appliances if you want to, and that's fine. But we want something different. We want something more more personal. We want something we can take more pride in, right? Hmm. That's a good way of putting it. 
<laughs> well, anyway, man, let's let's take a break because we've got some more headphones to talk cool. about. Um, yeah, well, we're we're gonna we're gonna take a little bit of a break, listen to some groovy music, and when we come back, we are going to be talking about Apple's new AirPods Pro. All right. Soundstage, Audiophile Podcast. I am Brent Butterworth. And I am Dennis Berger. Excellent. So we're going to move on from one discussion of headphones to another discussion of headphones because there's a lot going on in headphones this week. Um, mm-hmm. Apple just announced the new version of the AirPods Pro, which are one of the most uh, successful headphones out there. Mm-hmm. And as we can see in, I'm going to, I shouldn't pick on The Verge, but there's lots of publications. I just grabbed, a, I, I saw it in The Verge, among other places. But it talks about um, how, you know, the new uh, the new H2 chip that Apple's using allows the new earbuds to cancel up to twice as much noise over the first generation AirPods Pro. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a technical assessment of some sort and it was uh, so many people in the press just basically said that you know the the new the new model cancels twice as much noise as the old one mm-hmm. and as a headphone measurement guy and as the I, I have i mean lots of people doing headphone measurements but but most of them concentrate on frequency response and i've kind of made it made it a specialty to concentrate a lot on noise canceling because it's just fascinating to me mm-hmm. and i've measured a lot of noise canceling and I don't have any idea what twice as much noise is. Um, and I, I was just really disappointed that people just just printed this and didn't say, well, what does that mean, Apple? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Although we have to give credit to The Verge. At least they did put it in air quotes, right? They put it in quotes. Yeah, the H2 they put it in quotes. The, yeah, up to twice as much noise in quotes, uh, according to the press release, which, yeah, yeah give them credit for that. But, yeah, um, so they did, they did, you know, attribute it to Apple, mm-hmm. but this is just such an obvious thing. That's like, mm-hmm. you know, if I if I went to an, an editor at some publication and said I'm twice as good a writer as I was, you know, last year, mm-hmm. <laughs> what the hell would that mean? <laughs> so, well, you know, I mean, I think I've heard over the years. I think I've heard people confidently say that you know, three uh, dB represents twice mm-hmm. as much sound, and I've heard people confidently say that ten dB equals twice as much sound, you know, they're talking about different things, but like, what does that mean to you in terms of noise? So what is, uh, well, let's try to unpack that because, all right, so here's the standards. All right. So if you increase the power of an amplifier by a hundred percent, if you go from 100 to 200 Watts, Mm -hmm. that will give you an extra three decibels. Mm -hmm. So that's in that way, three decibels is twice as much. Mm -hmm. If you place two, let's say two powered speakers next to each other playing, if you have a powered speaker sitting there and it's playing a certain, certain material at a certain volume, and then you place an identical powered speaker right next to it, 
playing the same material at the same volume, you will get a 6 dB increase in volume. Mm -hmm. So that's twice as much. Now, it is generally accepted in audio that perceptibly a 10 dB increase in volume is perceived as twice as loud. Now, I don't quite understand that because what does twice as loud mean? Mm. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's like is, if, I, if, if I talk real low like this and then I start talking like this, is that twice as loud? <laughs> I don't know. That was probably the, about that was probably about 10 dB. Well, by the time um, I run it through the compressor, it's not gonna be. <laughs> oh well yeah. See, so everything is thrown off. Yeah. And I'm using this delightful uh uh Focusrite Vocaster 2, which in the radio mode, which adds its own compression. So yeah. who knows? Yeah. Um we have no idea what this thing's gonna sound like. So yeah. um, but it's very confusing. And then then we're talking about increases in volume. How mm. do people perceive noise? Well, I'm looking at a review of yours, these Phaeton 900s. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're looking at the sort of the graph of, of active noise cancellation. And you're, you know, along the bottom, you're going from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. Mm -hmm. uh, along the side, you're going from 90 dB SPL to 40 dB SPL from top to bottom. And there's yeah. a graph. And it looks like a, you know, in a, in a weird way, a frequency response graph, although it's it's, it's quite slanted. But, you know, I, I, I almost like... Are they are they averaging that? Are they saying like you know if it's if it's reducing you know twenty hertz frequencies by this much and eighty hertz frequencies by this much? Do we take the mean of those and that's how much it's reducing overall, or or do you take like the shape of the graph and maybe the volume of the polygon that that creates and and it's it's, it's sort of a, yeah. a, a geometric thing and you know this polygon is twice the volume of this polygon so that's yeah. twice and as you know, much noise at what, reduction at what frequency are we talking about yeah here? that's another good point it's yeah like, wait it's noise canceling i mean almost nothing in audio is a flat line right mm -mm. When you're when you are canceling noise, you're going to cancel some frequencies more than others, and that's just the way it goes. And you, if you look at my headphone measurements, you can see that. Yeah, and it's never a flat line. It's never even close to a flat line. No, it looks like a mountain, a mountain yeah. range. Yeah. yeah. So 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 it's the whole thing is just. I'm, I don't have any doubt that Apple. If you found, if you were lucky enough to find the right engineer at Apple, and I seriously doubt they'd let you talk to their engineers, <laughs> um, you would, well, let's say if the marketing person who might talk to you at Apple, um, you know, actually, you know, digs deep enough into, what is that one infinite loop? Um, that big building yeah. they have, um, yeah. if, they, if they find the one person in there who actually you know came up with that, I'm sure that that engineer has some justification for what they said. I yeah. just think that it's time. So, so what I do, I mean, for, for uh, you know, our old friend Jeff Morrison, um, he asked me, uh, oh, years ago when we were both working for a different publication to come up with a one number standard for noise canceling. And, because all these companies say, oh, it's it's minus 20 dB of noise canceling. But, you know, again, at, at what, what frequency? frequency? Yeah. And so what I did was I, f I was flying a lot then. And so I went on, uh, I took four different flights on four different kind of planes. And I sat in different places and just kind of randomized the whole thing. And then I recorded the sound of the airplanes. And then I went home 
and I, I did a spectrum analysis of all those. I averaged the spectrum analysis and I found that basically airplane noise, which is, you know, airplane noise is the main thing people are trying to block with noise canceling headphones and, and noise canceling headphones can do a mind blowingly good job of blocking airplane noise because mm-hmm. it's so low in frequency. So I found that most airplane noise was between, uh, I, I think a hundred Hertz and, and 1200 Hertz. And so what I did was I averaged the noise canceling in that range. Mm. And then, you know, I, I look at, you know, I measure at a baseline of 85 decibels, right? So when mm-hmm. I play a bunch of noise, I play 85 decibels worth of noise. I put the headphone on the fixture and I see how much the headphone reduces that noise at different frequencies. And so I take that and you know, so, so you'll, you'll look at the curve and it might be minus 15 at one point. It might be minus five at one point, you know, et cetera. But I take the average of all that between 100 hertz and 1200 hertz and, you know, subtract that from 85 and that's my number. And mm. it might be minus 15. It might be minus 20. Those are, you know, minus 20 is a good number. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll see a little more than that. I think the Apple AirPods Max, you know, their over ears were... Uh, they were at least among the best I've ever measured. They they might have gotten into the high twenties, maybe even thirty. Um, but it's a consistent measurement, and you know anybody can do that. Anybody's welcome to to steal that from me. And because hey, maybe Apple did. <laughs> well, they wouldn't. They they got they got heavier duty engineers than me. That's for sure. I'm not even an engineer. So oh, wait, um, Brent, I just found a. I just found a smoking gun that leads me to believe even Apple doesn't understand what they're talking about what, here. What do they say? So, so the Verge pointed to the press release. Okay, mm-hmm. and let's let's just let's just break this down into Mickey Mouse terms. So, the press release says cancels up to twice as much noise over the previous generation AirPods Pro. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's let's try to quantify that. Let's just say they've got a system like you and they're and they're considering uh let's say they call one unit of noise cancellation a Lauren. Okay. And okay. so so let's imagine that the AirPods Pro had 20 Laurens of noise cancellation. So that mm-hmm. would be claiming that the AirPods Pro 2 have 40 Laurens of noise cancellation, right? Mm-hmm. But if you go to the product page, it does not say twice as much. It says huh. up to two times more. So that would mean if the the AirPods had 20 Laurens of noise cancellation, then the AirPods Pro 2 would have 60 Laurens of noise cancellation. Two times as much is not the same thing as two times more. I mean, it's, they can't even get consistent in their own language. So they're just making crap up, man. I wonder, I'm, I'm actually, as we talk, I'm... Mm-hmm. I'm looking up, I have measurements of that product mm-hmm. and, uh, oh, that's interesting. I kind of, I kind of had the idea that it was better, that it was pretty good noise canceling based on, maybe that was based on the fact that the maxes were so good, mm-hmm. but, um, I'm trying to figure out, I'm, I'm really not seeing much. I, so twice as much noise canceling for, uh, you know what I'm going to say twice as much noise canceling. Let's say that they decided that's 10 dB. Mm-hmm. That's valid, you mm-hmm. know. Um, although you could say six, but let's just say 10. Mm-hmm. And they are not that good. 
at least the old model was not that good. I have the measurements right here and mm -hmm. it's not impressive. And it's, you know, I'm the, the best I was able to get out of it because, you know, like we just said in the last segment, headphone measurements vary. And so, and these are measurements done with noise and any, any measurement done with noise is going to only be moderately consistent. Mm -hmm. Even though these are, you know, by industry standard, these are smooth to one third octave, which makes them more consistent. But mm -hmm. I'm looking at, you know, in the airplane band from 100 to 1200 or whatever, I'm looking at an average noise reduction of about eight decibels. Just mm -hmm. that's just me looking at the thing. I didn't actually do the math. Might be more, but um, well, let's 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 give them a little more. Let's say nine. Let's say average of nine. Okay. Could even be so, an average of could could even be an average. It might you know what? Let's let's give them let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say it's an average of ten dB. So if they're at minus twenty, that's a very doable amount of noise reduction. Given that, well, they're using their own chip, but you go buy these these Qualcomm chips or whatever, and and the noise reduction capability in there is spectacular. I mean, a lot of companies that don't have a lot of resources are achieving great noise reduction nowadays. Mm -hmm. But Apple did not with the original AirPods Pro, but maybe the new ones. I mean, somebody's going to get in a set and ask me to measure them. So yeah. um, we'll see. Well, but maybe, yeah, I know, just, I, I, I need you to figure out if it's two times as much or two times more. Because <laughs> well, those are very I'm, different I'm gonna, things. I'll, 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 I probably won't review them, but I will, yeah. maybe I'll address this in a column at some point, but um they are, and then then another problem that you have with these measurements is now some of these things are adaptive. And mm -hmm. so they're going to change the noise canceling profile depending on your surroundings. They're going to, you know, listen for what's going on around you mm -hmm. and change the noise canceling profile to suit that. Um, and the way that nobody has really tried to characterize that to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, the way I do it is I just set all my systems for full blast, you know, 85 dB pink noise. And because uh, I figured that'll push the system to the max. And what I want to know is what is the maximum noise canceling? I don't want to know, well, gee, what's it going to do if you're in your, you know, if you're on a, on a busy street, whatever. It's like, well, I, I could probably profile that and probably figure out a way to measure it. But, you know, life's short. Um, if somebody really wants me to do it and it's going to pay me, I'd probably do it. <laughs> it'd be actually, it'd actually be a lot of fun. Maybe I, oh, you know, yeah, maybe because I, I know who would pay me to do that. Maybe I should do that. Yeah. Maybe I should. Well, life is short, but this segment's getting a little long. So let's go take a All break, right. man. Cool. Let's cancel the noise canceling. All right. Here, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Dennis Berger. And I'm Brent Butterworth. And for today's final segment, we are going to be digging into yet another review from Gordon Brockhouse over at Soundstage Simplify. Uh, like I said in the intro, we're talking about Gordon a lot lately, but I think that's mm -hmm. because he has got his finger on the pulse of the future. 
of audio reproduction. He and I think, does. Yeah, I think this is a... The last time we talked about Gordon was, I believe, the Kef LS60 review, which is a review mm-hmm. of two tower speakers with a you know, built-in streaming ecosystem and everything like that. And this week, we're talking about a different sort of music system, the JBL L75MS integrated music system, which is um, just single cabinet. Um, mm-hmm. looks, uh, you know, it's, it's one integrated music player that's, you're going to sit on a desktop or tabletop or something like that radically different in terms of its form factor, but in terms of its functionality and its connectivity, very, very similar. Yeah. But I think what's neat about this one for me is it's just a really, really cool blend of future thinking connectivity and form factor in a way, but very retro styling with sort of walnut cabinet and the old, you know, JBL Quadrex foam grills, which maybe people don't know what I'm talking about, but if they go look at it, if they Google Quadrex grills and see a picture, they're going to be, like, oh yeah, I remember that. So yeah, it's like a molded foam grill with a bunch of little squares molded into it. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, in the in the days of the classic JBL L100 speaker, you could get them in, if I remember correctly, black, blue, or orange. So they had a real classic 70s. If you saw these speakers, you'd be like, oh yeah, that. And JBL has, in fact, re-released all of those speakers in modern you know, re-engineered versions as well. But it's kind of mm-hmm. one of their trademarks, sort of like a, you know, having all the tuning pegs on the top part of the headstock is like Fender's trademark, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's kind of like that. It's a good tr- it's a good thing to have. Yeah. Most of the connectivity for this thing is either wireless or network. There's an Ethernet cable. There's also an HDMI arc port, so you could just connect this thing to a smart TV. But there's also a phono stage built in. I believe yeah. it's a phono stage, right? Not just a phono input. Yeah, it is it's a phono, a phono stage. stage. It's got a moving magnet uh, phono preamp, so you can yeah. add a you know sort of normal moving magnet cartridge. Mm-hmm phone up you know uh, a turntable to it right and you can use this as your full home entertainment system because it kind of connects to everything and yeah. one thing that a lot of you know all-in-one speakers get a bad rep because you know let's face it a lot of them are kind of under engineered mm-hmm. and you know they slap a few drivers in a cabinet and sometimes it's you know sometimes i'll just do like a, a woofer and two tweeters to kind of sort of make it sound stereo ish mm-hmm. but this this speaker's pretty wide and pretty low so it's you know like a low profile horizontal configuration and they have a, a woofer in the middle like a subwoofer ish thing in the middle then on each side they have a full on two way speaker with a, what looks like about a probably five and a quarter inch woofer and then a you know one inch dome tweeter so each each side has its own channel and and they're they're actually angled a little bit, so you're going to get more of a, a stereo effect and more of a a bigger sound than you're going to get out of a normal all-in-one speaker. Yeah, and it's you know this is really like like you know it's got a I'm seeing here it's got a DSP based fourth order link with Trolley crossover mm-hmm. centered on 2.5 kilohertz, which as I look at that speaker, it's like oh well that's what it needs because. When you have that steeper crossover like that, you're going to have less overlap between the drivers. And when the woofer's next to the tweeter horizontally, right, Mm -hmm. if you have interference between the drivers, you're going to get comb filter effects as you move side to side. Right. Right? Just as you do with a bad center speaker. Yeah. So the fact they used a really steep crossover and the fact that Linkwitz Riley is basically, you know, two cascaded Butterworth filters and anything 
you know, Butterworth I like. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. But hey, can like I stop really, you real quick? They put though? some thought into this. They really put some thought into the engineering. They did not slap drivers in a box for this thing. I want to ask you about something because you mm-hmm. made the same assumption that I did when I looked at this thing. And upon deeper uh, inspection, uh, it turns out we're both wrong. So, um, so it does have the two two tweeters. It's got a tweeter uh-huh. on each side, but then the the larger drivers that are on each side uh-huh. are the woofers, and the speaker in the middle is the mid range. So they're oh, not weird. they're not doing tweeter mid woofer mid tweeter. They're doing hmm. tweeter woofer mid woofer. Boy, it's a good thing they got those steep crossovers because the steep crossovers also allow you to to move the drivers further apart. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because the further apart you move the drivers, the more they're going to interfere with each other. Mm-hmm. And the steeper the crossover is, the less they're going to interfere with each other. Yeah. So I'd be curious to hear this thing. It, you know that that's that's a that's definitely you know diving into the deep end from an engineering standpoint to try to make that work. Yeah. So. And it's, it's so huh. that middle mid-range driver mm-hmm. has got uh, 50 watts RMS power on it. Yeah. Each of the tweeters has 25 watts RMS. And then those two woofers each have 125 watts RMS. So this thing's got a lot of power behind it, a lot of power that most people are probably never going to use. But it's got a lot of headroom, it seems. So Yeah. And total system frequency response of 45 hertz to 25 kilohertz. So, like, this thing plays pretty deep even without a subwoofer like yeah. the 45 hertz is the is the 60 db down point so that that's almost down to like the the lowest note you could play on a bass guitar yep and then you could add a sub if you wanted to so a lot of really cool connectivity here and you know it doesn't and we should point out it doesn't drop dead below 45 hertz it rolls off below 45 hertz so you right. will not lose the lowest note on a bass right it just won't be quite as loud as the next note up yeah and then if you connect a subwoofer it puts a filter on the on its own speakers right so that its own speakers mm-hmm. aren't generating the low low bass anymore and gordon was really impressed with the sound so and 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 again you know it's when gordon is reviewing these systems he's not comparing them you know just against sort of uh, desktop speakers or anything like that i mean he's putting them in the context of you know high performance speakers so I was really, really happy to read his review because he seemed thrilled with the performance. And, you know, this thing connects to almost anything you want. I mean, it's got Apple AirPlay 2. Mm-hmm. It's got, you know, Google Chromecast. Mm-hmm. It's got uh, Spotify Connect and Tidal Connect. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be, they supposedly have it in for Rune Ready certification, um, but it's not yet certified. Um, so it's kind of got, this is another one of those things like the the Kef Speakers Gordon reviewed a while back where... You buy this thing and you're you have your full entertainment system right there, mm-hmm. and you know you could plug it in below your TV and use it for a sound bar, and then use it for all these other things, and you really kind of wouldn't need anything else. And I really, I'm really curious to hear this thing. I hope I get a chance to hear it somewhere. Yeah, um, I don't know where I'd hear it. You were telling me this is like an upgraded version of a product that JBL released several years back, right? Yeah. So they had a thing called the L16. And this one's $1,500. The L16 was, I think, $1,000. Mm-hmm. And it was very Wait, this similar thing is to 1500 Yeah. Holy crap. Like, this is a lot. <laughs> this is a lot yeah, of product for 1500 bucks, man. And it looks beautiful. It looks yeah. really spectacular. And um, 
so yeah, so the so the earlier model, the L16, there was an L16 and an L8. The L8 was smaller, L16 was bigger. The L16 was a thousand, and if memory serves, it had something of a similar driver layout. But it was a this thing is shaped like a little like a horn, like a like a JBL, you know, horn off of a theater speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and the old one was just a just a rectangular box. It wasn't anywhere near as as groovy looking as this thing. So. Um, this is a this is a really neat product. I hope I get a chance to hear this sometime. I just don't know. Since I'm probably not going to CES, I probably won't get a chance to hear it unless somebody really tries to drag me to CES. Or, but you know, it's it's like, it's like you know, I don't know. Will Best Buy have it? They might. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Possible. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about like that. Like, where are people going to be exposed to this thing? Um, yeah, yeah. But you put this on like an end cap at Best Buy. If nothing else, I think just like the sort of the walnut cabinet would draw people's attention because in a world of, you know, in a world, in a world of like black plastic and metal and this, this sort of organic look of this thing really stands out. I mean, it's yeah. eye catching. So, yeah, yeah, it looks really great. It, it really, it both evokes old, you know, JBL legacy stuff. And it also looks, you know, thoroughly modern and hip and cool. And honestly, this is easily one of the nicest looking all-in-one speakers I've seen. And I've seen some that were more expensive where they threw a lot more money at it, but this is just really nice. Yeah. I mean, it looks like you almost have to drink martinis and smoke cigars to listen to this thing. I mean, it, 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 there's sort of a Mad Men vibe about it almost, you know? There is. There is. So it's retro, but there's nothing... It's timeless it's like, too. It's not dripping with retro. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. timeless. So yeah. you could drop this thing in front of somebody in 1972 and they would be like, Hey, that's nice. And you could drop it in front of somebody in 1992 and they would be like, Hey, that's nice. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. So yeah, it's really cool. Anything else yeah. you want to say about this one, man? No, I'm just, just eager to hear it. All right. Cool. Let's, let's wrap things up and do some credits, man. You want to do some credits? Cool. I would love to do some credits. All right. Well, this is uh, this has been the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, hosted by me, Dennis Berger, and by me, Brent Butterworth, and it is a <laughs> Butterburger production, meaning that uh, one of us did the mixing, master, and all of that. And uh, yeah. yeah, we should say we're a presentation of the Soundstage Network. Yeah, which is a collection of nine microsites available at Soundstage.com, and you can go in there and browse all the latest. Uh, you probably access about fifty articles right off of that one page. Yeah. So who did the music, man? Oh, this will be, as usual, my music with some combination of uh, contribution from friends like Ron Seiger and Dan Gonda, most likely. Mm -hmm. Cool. And what else do we have to talk about? I think that's it, man. I think think it's time to go and let people, uh, I don't know, watch Lord of the Rings or something, whatever it is that people do when they're not listening to the Soundstage Audiophile podcast. Oh, well, they should go watch Prey. Oh yeah, you were telling me about that. I still watch that yet? No, I haven't watched it. Dude. I've been listening to Bjork's new podcast, which is just the greatest thing in the world. I'm gonna listen to that. Yeah. I'm gonna listen to that. It's very good. I'm gonna write an article about it soon. So cool. All right, man. Well, uh, I guess we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.